0: let's talk about um, luck and privilege and where you're born and your family and colleges. What, what'd you find from your research or your introspection around that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I I mean, this is, this is the opening chapter that, you know, most entrepreneurs come from backgrounds of wealth that they can fall back on. And so I think recognizing that and knowing that, you know, when you look at a lot of these, the outlier entrepreneurs, right, that they are, People who come from privileged backgrounds and people who can, who if and when they fail, and many of them have, and uh, with previous you know iterations, they can fall back on on family money. Um, and I think that that is that is very different from saying, "Gosh, I'm an entrepreneur, and if this fails, we're 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 all kind of sunk, right? I need to, I'll need to go get a job, you know, in six weeks if I can't close two more deals." Um, that that's a very different kind of thing.
0: Hey, y'all, welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy, The Rhino Lab. It's Ryan Williams here. Each episode of this podcast, I speak with the business leader, author, or entrepreneur about how we can learn to change the world through actions and lessons based on their storytelling. This podcast is all about the power of the story, and I also want to help you tell your stories. If you'd like to work with me to help your marketing strategy, digital collaboration, and brand storytelling, you find more information at influencereconomy.com. I collaborate with workshops. Seminars and public speaking talks as well. You find more information at influencereconomy.com. Hey, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. It's Ryan Williams here with Rand Fishkin. He's the founder of Spark Toro and was the previous co founder of Moz and Inbound.org. He's a previous guest. This is his second appearance on the podcast. Uh, if you want to go back in the archives, Rand and I talked a lot about, uh, mental wellness, mental health, and depression, which uh, at the time, is, it's very timely at the moment, and we uh, kind of talked about the strengths and weaknesses of how we can all work together to uh, help others that are depressed, and this ties in greatly to his new book, uh, which is called Lost and Founder, A Painfully Honest Field Guide to the Startup World. So, Rand, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Ryan.
0: What I love about your book is that you really demystify the Silicon Valley dream. And exactly. you know, you're know you based in uh, Seattle, I'm based in Los Angeles and these Silicon Valley bubbles are everywhere around the world Absolutely. and it's all about big risk, big reward. And you only hear about the successes often because that's what uh, we all aspire to be, right? We wanna be the, the rich CEO, the rich founder or the rich venture capitalist. So yeah. with that perspective, like, what was the inspiration for writing the book?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that you've nailed it. I I kept encountering these these myths and these biases that Silicon Valley startup culture had put forth into the world and that press and media and popular culture had amplified. Um, And I found that very frustrating because, A, venture capital is right for only a very tiny number of companies. Uh, And the classic VC-backed startup path, which is a very high risk, you know, 95% or so failure rate if, if failure is defined as didn't return, you know, the amount of capital that they were intended to, to to their investors.
0: So, f- so 5% success.
1: 5% succeed, right? So, you know, the, the day a company raises their first venture round, they've gone from, you know, a 60% five-year survival rate to a 10% five-year survival rate. And so it's, you know, I always have this What what I always say to entrepreneurs I meet who tell me they just raised their first round is congratulations. Yeah, you know (laughs) I don't know if that's a great thing. And so the book is is inspired by this, um, you know these biases and it's trying to demystify a lot of these things and say that there's another way. There's probably a better way. Um, not for every company, but certainly for most.
0: And when you look back at your career with Moz and you know going through depression, like. Can you explain like what it was like to leave your company uh, being in a prolonged depression and, you know, we're not just talking about like you were bummed out, you know, for a day. And so that is want to make sure people listening understand that we're not trying to say that he had a bad week. And what was it like watching your company from afar and like overcoming that to then write the book and start a new company?
1: Yeah. Well, so, I mean, the interesting part is uh, I, I was sort of, you know, infuriated and and sad and frustrated and overwhelmed and, you know, just sort of mentally unprepared. And Moz, I mean, you know, let's put this in context. In 2013, our growth rate slowed from 100% year over year to like 55% year over year. And, you know, I think one of our investors said, Randy, you're still one of the best performing companies in our portfolio. But, you know, I, I just couldn't because I think because of depression, because this is how depression works, right I couldn't see clearly. you know I was so uh, frustrated with everything to do with the business. everything felt wrong and bad and unfixable and um, you know overwhelming for me um, what, what, what
0: was overwhelming
1: everything was overwhelming the the you know product not being what I wanted it to be was overwhelming the inability to hire engineers and enough of them was overwhelming. The frustration with contractors was overwhelming. Um, The demands of our customers felt overwhelming. The demands on my time felt overwhelming. My inability to do, you know, personal care, sort of just to be a healthy person and sleep well and eat well and, you know, get reasonable amounts of exercise and all that stuff, right? I just felt... um,
0: Which is, which I love to hear you be honest about it. Cause I hate the word hustle and grind and all these people that are like work really hard. I'm up 6am and I'm tweeting about how far I'm, I'm, I'm already working and it's, it's just such BS. This. <laughs> and that's why, you know, it's refreshing in your book because ultimately I hate the grinders like yeah. hashtag rise and grind.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, no. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm completely with you. And I think what, the reason I hate it is not because um, having a strong work work ethic is not admirable. Right, I, I find it admirable. I think that people who have a strong work ethic, um, you know, should take pride in that. I think that's a fine thing. Uh, what I think is ridiculous is when you point to uh, overwork and and um, time that takes away from personal health and care and being able to care for your friends and family and loved ones around you and. The, making the world a better place, which all of us should be doing at least a little bit of, hopefully. Uh, I, th- I think when you sacrifice all those things, what you actually get is not only a, a worse quality human being, but a worse quality company, a mm-hmm. worse quality business, right? So there's there's lots of studies because this is a fascinating topic for university endowment funds that we look into. and Sorry, university uh, uh, research uh, institutions to look into and um, lots of private companies, right? And so all the research says... After about hour forty-five, you are negatively detracting from your work. Not, not you know, hour forty-six through hour eighty that you work. You believe in your mind right now, as you're listening to this, you're like, ah, that's BS. I you think during during the work week, right? In an eighty-hour work week, right? I'm the exception. I'm doing you know high-quality, good work that's contributing value to my company. Well, you know what? in all the research studies, there's like under 1% of people who add any value after hour 46. Uh, and some of us don't add much value after hour 35, which is why work weeks in Europe and the UK are 35 hours a week, right? Because they don't want they don't want you to negatively detract from the business. Yeah, with, right. With the sexual. So yeah, it's not... I, I want to be clear that I don't hate hustle because... Yeah,
0: I totally I'm agree. Sort of yeah. It's like you respect I, people's I, ethic, but work sensibly and work with purpose and... You know, work well, with, the, it, work with the reason that you understand that you want to fire on all cylinders and just not exactly. for the sake That's of it.
1: Exactly. I mean, especially as, you know, I think the people who, who do this most are often founders and CEOs and, and the jobs of founders and CEOs is to make great decisions, right? Your, your job is to make great decisions for the people around you and the strategy and what you're investing in and decision-making is so dramatically impaired. Your performance on on any sort of test or on any reasoning or any reading a social situation with, you know, less than eight hours of sleep, with uh, less than, um, you know, with with, uh, less than, you know, 10 hours off from work in a day is awful.
0: Yeah. Awful. And so why do you think we believe the opposite and we can't listen to these studies?
1: (laughs) I, I think because we hear stories and we fetishize those stories uh and they and the stories resonate for us right it it feels like gosh you know i have these other overwhelming obligations in my life but if i could be like i don't know elon musk and work 80 hours a week and do nothing but work i could be successful if too. i had
0: three companies you know <laughs> and in my spare time i was making a flamethrower that would be amazing. That sounds terrible to me, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I mean,
1: I, I think that um, he's clearly enjoying his life. And yeah, he's like a unique guy. Fine, right. And, and probably works with a lot of uh, a lot of good people. But I, I would say that I think there's there's a few things that we should we should all recognize, which is how much luck plays into luck and timing and background and you know, being being born into the right situations uh, benefits people who are entrepreneurs. So one of the things I point out in at the start of Lost and Founder is that there's this there's this myth that sort of entrepreneurs are often self-made people, right? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if you caught this yesterday, right? The Forbes thing about Kylie Jenner being their self-made woman of the year or something like that. And, um, and of course, dictionary.com tweeted out, Here's the definition of self-made, and then, and then here's this article. It was uh, some impressive
0: Dictionary.com story, right? come, uh, troll? I love it. They're just yeah, like, yeah, but they're trolling for good.
1: Exactly, and so so I think that I think that that um, mythology just looms large in our heads, right? Stories resonate so much more powerfully than data. It's really easy for a lot of people to believe a story, right? Um, uh, but this this happens all the time in, in politics, right? People think oh, the United States is having a crime wave because I heard from my neighbor about how they had a break-in or something. And so that story resonates much more strongly than crime is at a 40-year low, mm-hmm. a 50-year low, something like that, right? And so I, I get it. I get, that, I get that these stories resonate. I think that our job is, when we have these stories to tell, as I do in Lost and Founder, to tell them so that people have a counterexample um, and hopefully one that fits better with the data.
0: Yeah, it's really great. And uh, and I say great, meaning like this is uh, an important note in the history going back. I think if you look back in 50 years, hopefully we'll think about this time as like we've made a lot of crazy mistakes. And we had this mythology around Silicon Valley with Sergey and Larry, of the founders of Google, and they're in their garage. Uh, and they're making this product. Like you, you work in your shed. I, I retrofitted yeah. my garage. I'm not there right now. But like this mythology and actually building a company by yourself in your garage is an incredibly lonely frustrating experience however if you went to stanford <laughs> like those guys
1: and you have you have venture capitalists beating down your doors to invest yeah yeah
0: well can you uh, I'd love to hear uh, an example of someone can listen this and of uh, of how like this mythology really hurts us in a way that it tells us our like our um, our variables are off because yeah, sure. we all think that we should aspire, but if I didn't go to Stanford, no one tells you that the majority of like the Instagram founders and venture capitalists and really wealthy individuals went to Ivy League schools or Stanford.
1: Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, so I think you know this is a very um, sort of tactical one, but I think can help a lot of business owners, which is I, I think that one of the big pieces of advice that have come out of Silicon Valley startup world is this idea of the MVP right? The minimum viable product. Um, and the concept behind this is that when you're releasing something new, a new product, a new service, um, you should create the, the thing that solves the problem with the minimum amount of time and effort and dollars to build it so that you can validate whether there's actually a market for this thing. It's like you're
0: running doing. a pilot or a test.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like running a pilot or a test. But Uh, I think that that idea has gone a little bit too far, and there are many companies of all sizes and shapes that have embraced, we're going to release an MVP, right? this this minimum thing. And as a result, when they do, what very often happens is what I'll call the, the MVP hangover. And the MVP hangover is this phenomenon where customers look at this thing that you built and potential customers, and they say, this is a really small, crappy version that just barely solves the problem. Are you the kind of company or you must be the kind of company that builds small crappy versions of stuff? and that's not very interesting. To me. <laughs> I want you know I want the biggest about. you're not right? thinking
0: big enough. I mean yeah, yeah. so
1: I, so I think that I think that the MVP, when you are anything but a tiny little startup with a very, very small audience and putting out something ti- you know putting out something minimal, will not uh, harm their brand reputation because they have no brand reputation to harm, right? They can change their name tomorrow. No one's heard of them anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, So it works fine for a, you know, venture-backed Silicon Valley-based startup, doesn't work so well for most of the rest of us. Um, I think, I have never heard customers say, oh, you know, when Moz released MVPs, I, I never heard the, Oh, this is kind of a crap version, but I can see where they'll eventually yeah, yeah. be going with this. And in a year, I bet it'll be good. Right. I'm going to stick with them.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: How anyone thinks.
0: hundred percent. Yeah. It's actually, we think this is crappy and you are wasting my time. I don't, I don't want to be an early adopter. I don't want to fall in love with your version and then grow with you as a brand or a company. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's I want to right. buy a good product. And then Yeah, so
1: I think the, the alternative, the alternative that benefits from the same sort of strategic focus that the MVP has is what, what I've been calling the EVP, the exceptional viable product. And that is basically you build that MVP, that, that smallest, lightest version, and you have a very small group of people who are customers and potential customers that you privately test it with and show it to, and a, a handful of them, 10, 20, 30 people. If they resonate with the product, okay, you're on to something. Great. Now iterate until they're so excited about it that they can't wait to share with their friends, and they're begging you to release it publicly. And you know it's truly extraordinary. Now release it. Now you're going to have a really big success with that launch, uh, and you're not going to burn your brand reputation, and you still benefited from the MVP methodology.
0: And it's the EVP. Yeah. And so you're exceptionally. And is it? Are you building this with a trust network of people that?
1: Yeah, generally speaking, I mean, I think you can recruit folks as well. So for SparkToro, for example, I went on Twitter a few weeks ago. I said, hey, you know, I saw clout is dying. Um, uh, My co-founder and I are going to build a little mini replacement for clout that gives what we think is a more transparent and better score around, you know, the real influence of a Twitter account. If you're interested, drop me an email. I'll, I'll get you into the beta and you can give us feedback. And 290 people emailed me. And I emailed them all back and they gave us a bunch of feedback and we iterated for three weeks on this thing and we just released it yesterday um, and it's doing great. Uh, and this is your new not,
0: product. Yeah, can you explain what that is?
1: Oh, sure. It, it's it's not even a new product, it's a free side project tool, um, but it is designed to calculate the true influence of any Twitter account because follower count is just it's BS. very inaccurate.
0: Yeah. Uh, and it's,
1: called, it's oh. called Spark Score.
0: Spark Score. And, uh, and so let's yeah, that's actually a good segue. When you think about now building a new company, you know what is one lesson from this experience of Moz? And talking about you know, let's just like the burnout, right? Because when you burn out as a startup founder or small business owner or anything where you own it, like you live and breathe, you're answering emails on the weekends, you're uh, sacrificing your personal relationships, your spouse. You know, you're definitely like. Potentially, one of you is in therapy. <laughs> it's, hopefully, yeah, you, yeah. hopefully, you can get the help you need. Uh, you know? Hopefully,
1: both of you. Hopefully, both of you. Both of you. Um,
0: so now, as you build a, a new company and you're testing new ideas out, like, what's one real lesson that you learned about personal life balance um, when you know writing Lost and Founder?
1: Yeah, I mean, one. I think one of the biggest reflections that I had for me was I don't love building. Big things. I don't love aiming for, you know, that rocket ship, you know, one in a hundred or one in a thousand company that's going to be, you know, a billion dollar startup or or a hundred million dollar exit. That's those are fine. I, I respect people who do that as well. But I love doing small things. I think in a lot of ways I'm more of an artist than an entrepreneur. Right. I right. like I like to create. I like to help people. Um, I, I, I love making things that are confusing and, and secretive, transparent. That is, you know, that, that's really powerful and interesting to me. Um, and as a result, what, I, what we did with this, this new company is design it in such a way and get it funded in such a way that we did not have to have, you know, a billion dollar exit. We did not need to become, we, we, we can make our investors uh, a lot of money even if we're only a few million dollars in revenue. And, um, and that's a that's a very unique structure. I, I actually published and open sourced the docs that we use for this fundraising round so that anyone hopefully can follow in these footsteps. And a few people have emailed me and said that they have been and they've been using them with their attorneys as they're building their companies, which is awesome. Because I think it doesn't have to be, you know, we're completely self-funded and bootstrapped or we're venture capital backed and, and have to shoot for the moon. I think there can be an in-between that makes, you know, reasonable sense for companies that want to... Uh, experiment with their opportunity and see what they could what they might be. So SparkToro might be huge. That could be great, but it might be a smaller company, and that is something where I want to be able to reward investors as well.
0: What What are you doing now differently as far as like your health, you know, and maintaining oh, yeah. balance? And
1: well, one. I mean, one of the things is I I realize that I don't. I really don't love working from an office. Uh, I like working from home a lot. I get a tremendous amount more done. I I can get done in maybe five or six hours what I could get done in a whole day uh, at the office. And so, um, yeah, working from home has been wonderful for me. Uh, I invest more in my health every morning when I wake up. I do a bunch of physical therapy exercises. Uh, I get a lot more sleep than I used to. I don't have to deal with the commute, which is stressful and hard for you know for a ton of people, especially Americans, um, because we we just haven't invested in mass transit well. Uh, so, yeah.
0: And what about your... You know, getting back to these stats, I, I love how you, you know, saying about like how 5% of all companies that raise capital or in this criteria of startup that are trying to grow quickly, they fail or sorry, 5% succeed. Yeah. A- and you know, what, what is really important for people listening to understand about like how to handle the failure? Because, you know, yeah. most of us, like, I have my own company and let me tell you, it's not fun. It's, but everyone I talk to, all my friends live vicariously through me. And everyone thinks you're crushing it when you have your own business. And and also, you don't really necessarily want to let people in to the fact of like, no, you have no idea how hard today was. <laughs>
1: yeah. No, I think, that, I think that can be a struggle. Um, but, uh, you know, on the, on the flip side, I would say that – so entrepreneurship is sacrificing a lot of safety and sacrificing um, – you know, probably uh, uh, statistically speaking, definitely more money, right. That you can make it a big company um, in exchange for the freedom to do things the way that you want to do them, And, and I think recognizing that, saying that, Hey, today was hard, but I got to do it my way. Right. And I, I got to do it the way, the, the way that I think is correct. I got to work with the people that I wanted to work with. I got to say no to the people that I didn't want to work with. I, um, yeah, I think that that is. You don't monumental. have to drive to work.
0: You don't have to drive to the office. You know. Well, yeah.
1: I mean, you if you want to build an office, yeah. Then you can, but like
0: you, the sanity of that. Uh, if you hate traffic, then you you have the freedom right. to not worry yeah, about so it. This
1: is, I mean, that's this is what entrepreneurship is about, and and I think that that recognizing that and then investing in that, doubling down on that, not doing things with your business because you think you're supposed to or because you think it's the standard thing to do, but doing them because it's what makes you. Happy. It's what brings you joy. And and certainly you're going to make some sacrifices. You're going to say, I'm going to do some things that I really hate because the business needs them. And I want the business to succeed. And I think this is the right thing to do. And that's awesome too. And recognize that, that you're making those sacrifices because you want to invest in this thing. Um, and I think just oftentimes just that reflection, that recognition that you're doing things for you and you're getting to do them your way can be powerful because it's, um, it's sort of mind expanding to, to imagine that this is, that this is truly your baby.
0: Yeah. There's, as I hear this, you know, I think about the word authentic, which is another word that's, that's ballied around like the word influencer (laughs) and uh, that authenticity is really, I believe like when your actions match your words and you're able to follow through on what you say because you believe in it and it happens. And with this, it sounds very authentic and real in that when you control your own freedom, like I, I look at wealth as a, differently than other people. Like I'd love to have five houses and 17 boats and a private jet. But wealth is really freedom. And that's what I feel like you're talking about is that you can make your own choices.
1: Yeah. And I mean, this is one of the wonderful things that entrepreneurship allows, right? It allows freedom even if you don't necessarily have a lot of wealth. You know, my I mean, um, my wife and I certainly have more money than many you know, many people, many Americans, I think we're probably in the top, I don't know, 20% or so, right? But um, yeah, as a, as a result, right, we can we can make our, our house payments and I've got this nice tool shed, um, which doesn't have AC, but yeah, that's fine. And, that's good.
0: and you talked earlier, it was interesting about how people that are building something and they're helping others and they're problem solving with their products, like, you know, what would you say is your problem you're solving with a book?
1: I mean, what I hope is that, as I mentioned, I mean, the one, the one line I used to pitch uh, publishers with it was, you know, Silicon Valley startup culture biases companies and entrepreneurs to make a lot of dumb mistakes. And this book will hopefully help you avoid them.
0: Okay. And then, what, you know, let's talk about um, luck and privilege and where you're born and your family and colleges. What did you find from your research or your introspection around that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, this is this is in the opening chapter that, you know, most entrepreneurs come from backgrounds of wealth that they can fall back on. And so I think recognizing that and knowing that, you know, when you look at a lot of these, the outlier entrepreneurs, right, that they are people who come from privileged backgrounds and people who can, who, if and when they fail, and many of them have, and uh, with previous, you know, iterations, they can fall back on on family money, Um and I think that that is that is very different from saying, "Gosh, I'm an entrepreneur, and if this fails, we're 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 all kind of sunk, right? I need to I'll need to go get a job, you know, in six weeks if I can't close two more deals." Um, that that's a very different kind of thing.
0: So the, even the mythology there, like we're saying with uh, Kylie Jenner being a self-made gazillionaire, she's really like the, I, the stat that I saw was like you should put in how much money you had before to take the risk to be self-made or quote right, unquote right. self-made versus like what your outcome is. Cause you're right. If you can, if you have family money, you can fall back on take a lot more risks.
1: This is the, uh, um, you know, for, I think for the last few years this has always been the thing with Donald Trump, right? People, people say, Oh, well, you, you know, you start. With your father. And, uh, if you had invested that in the stock market, you would be sort of about 10 times richer than if you had done all these, Supposedly successful businesses that you built.
0: Well, that's a great point is the perception of wealth. Yeah. Is almost more important than the actual like steps the person did to get there. Yeah. And that we're so enamored with these rich or even perceived billionaires. Yeah. Like if you look at podcasts and tech and business and marketing, it's like, oh, billionaire Mark Cuban came on my show or billionaire Chris Saka or Donald Trump's a billionaire. Like the perception of being rich doesn't mean you're smart. Or you worked hard or you're actually good at what you do it just means you figured out how to make a lot of money or at least have the perception of that
1: yeah and there's a, and there's a tremendous amount of luck that goes into those.
0: Right? yeah um,
1: and and i think there there are some there are some thoughtful um good people who you know are in that situation who recognize that and are vocal about it right they say like no 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 this is not i could easily have failed at this i had the right timing and the right background and i went to the right place and i got the right network and a lot of that was where i was born and when i was born and what i look like and
0: yeah, yeah well how, how do we how do we counter the narrative like how do we cuz that's such a, a it's an american i mean it's really <laughs> it's yeah. an american superficial problem that we have where people feel like they are their perception is almost more important than anything else being wealthy or rich or living extravagant lives hmm.
1: i I will be honest, Ryan, that is a question out of my pay grade.
0: Yeah, it's really, I think it's fascinating though, because people would be a lot happier if they didn't aspire just to be super rich.
1: Uh, No doubt about that.
0: Um, uh, (laughs) Amazing. This is great. Um, So where can we find you online and, you know, obviously your book and please, um, I'll put everything in the show notes, but let me know, you know, how we can help support you.
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, So Lost and Founder is out and available in in bookstores of all kinds. Uh, So you can go to you know, indie books or Powell's or Amazon or whatever you use. Uh, there's also an audio version and a Kindle version. The uh, SparkToro is SparkToro.com. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter. That's where I'm most active, at Randfish.
0: Randfish. And uh, and then we always ask if you like the book or don't like the book, leave an Amazon review.
1: Yeah, please. It helps. And if you, actually, like this, if you like this podcast, I mean, leave an
0: iTunes review. You know, reviews really help. People don't get it.
1: Uh, I'm in this weird scenario where um, I am—I uh, 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 have too many high reviews on Amazon, and so I look like I've faked the reviews. <laughs> so if if some of you don't like the book, and you could leave me a two or three star review, that actually really helped me out.
0: We don't want to look like you're gaming the system here. So, um, it
1: looks like I'm gaming the system. It's, it, the reviews are too high. Even a four I think three. it's all my friends have you know gone and left reviews. Even a but,
0: four star review would help.
1: Yeah, even a four star
0: review would help. <laughs> Um, All right, Rand, repeat repeat customer, second time on the pod. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Take care. (laughs)